All right, Salt City. My name is Jordan Adams. I'm the, the college pastor here. I haven't taught in a long time. It's good to see you. Man, I just, yeah, thanks for coming. We appreciate you guys being here. And today we're finishing up the book of Mark. Uh, we've been going through this thing. It feels like forever, not in a bad way, kind of just made it sound like a bad way, but I, just like just under a year we've been going through the book of Mark and we're finishing it up today. And here's the moral of the story. Jesus is alive. Yeah, there we go. Not going to lie. I was hoping for a woo. You got me, Sadie. I appreciate it. There's not as many college students here, so I, I get it. The woos aren't as prevalent. We'll work on it. Um, but I, part of me in prepping for this is like, what do, you, what do you do with that? Like part of me wants to walk up here, say Jesus is alive, drop the mic. We, we good? We done? Like let you think about that. And I don't think I could get away with that. But that one simple truth, the implications of that for your life are staggering. Like if you, if you just this week would think about that truth, Jesus is alive, what does that mean for me? Your week and your life would be changed. I'm convinced of it. It's that important. And, and actually, this is the way that, that 1 Corinthians 15 puts it. Paul puts it in these like really sort of drastic terms We're in Mark 16, but I'm going to be referencing 1 Corinthians 15 a lot because it's also about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 14, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, if this thing didn't happen, everybody go home. There there is no point to what what we're doing here. There's no point to your faith. That's, that's a bold claim. He's staking a lot on the resurrection, and I think we should too. And, and so this is what we believe as Christians, that if you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you've disproved Christianity. It's useless. But if Jesus really is out of the grave, then you should fall at his feet and worship him as Lord. There's not middle ground with Jesus. He doesn't leave us that option to think of him as kind of a nice moral teacher or or somebody that there's some implications for our lives or something that we do on Sunday. It's one or the other. Either it's useless or it's everything. And I think it's everything. And I want to talk about that with you this morning. I want to talk about the implications for your life, that this isn't just some random piece of history, but that it means everything for you now. But before we do that, I should actually probably read you the story. So Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices. So these aren't, they're not like doing like a mummification thing here. Okay, these, they didn't do that. This is like an act of love, an act of adoration to bring spices to, to the body. So they bring spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away for the stone? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I love that, that little detail. That gives us a little hint on how Mark is writing. This isn't just like some random story. This isn't... Um, 
a, a fairy tale, right? Like nobody includes that type of detail in a random story. This is a historical account. And this is what's going down is the women get halfway to the tomb and they go, uh, we can't roll away the rock. What's the plan? And they don't really ever figure it out, but they just keep going to the tomb. And looking up, they saw the stone that had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, okay, so, so picture like a, a long um, rectangular tomb that's maybe four and a half foot tall. They have to bend down to get inside of it. And in front of it is this, this circular rock that's on this sort of track that gets rolled down in front of it. And they walk up and it's been rolled away. And so they walk right in, entering five, or sorry, verse five, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Okay, little hint, that's an angel, not just some random kid hanging out in the tomb. That'd be weird. Okay, it's an angel. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's the moment that changed the world. And that's really undeniable. Whether or not you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's undeniable historically that from this moment on, the world changed at a rapid pace and it's still changing today. We're still talking about it. This is the focal point of history. It's been changed in the world and it can change our lives. But, but real quick, I wanna, I wanna address the second section of Mark 16. So if you look in your Bibles, if you have a Bible on you, Verses 9 through 20, it's got, little, it, it's got little brackets around it in almost every Bible, and it'll say something like this, that, that Mark 9 through 20 wasn't included in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have, okay? For some of you, you're like, I don't care, move on, but you should care because that seems like really bad news for the Bible. So, so if there's something in there that wasn't a part of the original text, is the Bible reliable? And this is actually one of the claims that people make against Christianity is that there's a couple of these texts like this. And it, it is true, by the way. Almost every scholar agrees that this ending to the book of Mark, verses 9 through 20, was not written by Mark. It was not a part of the original Bible. It was added by a scribe later who wasn't super comfortable with the ending of Mark. And I'll explain that in a second. And so he added this little ending. Now, I want to show you why this is a reason for the Bible being reliable, not against it. And, and, and here's why. Here's why this is actually proof for the Bible, because we know all of the texts that were added later, and they're not confused with the originals, which actually gives us more confidence that the originals were the real thing. Okay, so do you ever have those, those nights where you can't sleep, and you could like do something productive with your life and it's two in the morning. So instead you're going to watch five reruns of Seinfeld. Like if you guys had this experience with me, so I go for Seinfeld or for some reason, Antiques Roadshow is just delightful. Like it is just, it's the type of thing that during the day you don't want people knowing you're watching because it's just a waste of your life. But at two in the morning, it is riveting television. 
And there's a sort of a, a modern version of Antiques Roadshow that I also like to, to go to from time to time. It's these guys that run this pawn shop, right? And, and they kind of, they, I don't know, they try and act tough and it's all about the art of the deal. And so this is what happens is that people bring in their, their stuff and then they get in this conversation about it. And notice that every single person that ever brings something in is convinced that what they have is not only real, but it's like the greatest thing that's ever existed on earth, right? And so they're trying to sell their thing. So I remember this one guy that was trying to sell like a 18th century revolver that was supposedly used in the Revolutionary War. And he, and he comes in and he says like, look, it's got this mark and so it's good to go. And, I, and I'm convinced like, yeah, it's that mark. I'm now an 18th century revolver historian. You know, it's the real deal. So, if, if those guys just randomly accepted every piece of uh, stuff, I didn't think through that sentence super well, sorry, every antique that comes in, right? They, they didn't test it, they didn't judge it, they just took their word for it. They just bought everything. Do you want to shop there? Which, why you're shopping for an 18th century revolver, we'll talk about that later. But do you want to shop there? No. Why? Because you don't know what's real and what's fake. It's all mixed in together. But is that what they do? No. They bring in an expert who knows the difference. And so this expert in this situation comes in, and within two seconds, he's like, yeah, this is fake. Why? Because he knows the real thing, and he knows what's fake, and he can tell you the difference. Now, if they filter through that, do you want to shop there? Yeah. Because you know what you're getting is the real thing. Because exposing what's fake gives you confidence when you see the real thing. And this is what's true of the Bible, is the fake stuff was weeded out in those few texts. There's only three of them that are in brackets. We know exactly where, where they are. We can point at them and say, no, nope, that wasn't a part of the originals, which means that the rest of the Bible is incredibly trustworthy. You can trust it because we've pointed out the stuff that wasn't there originally. And just like quick nerd out side note, I'll go quick on this, but hopefully, hopefully some of you like this. I, I care about this. I think it's important. From a bigger scale, is the Bible trustworthy? Here's what you need to know. One of the main things in determining if an ancient text is trustworthy is how many manuscripts it has. I'm not going to get into the details of that, but long story short, if you have 900 manuscripts and 899 of them say one thing and one of them says something else, you know that that's the one that's wrong, right? You can trust the 899. All you need to know is the more manuscripts, the better. The average ancient Greek text has 20 manuscripts. The best ancient story that we have is the Iliad. It has 643. 643, the absolute best ancient secular work that we have. How many does the Bible have? 5,801 Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. It, it is undeniably true that the Bible is the most historically accurate ancient work in the world, and it's not even close. We can trust this thing. Okay, so back to the text. That's my little side note. So my question is, if that long ending wasn't in there, why did Mark end it the way that he did? We've had this grand story, right, of, of miracles and storms calmed and all this stuff happening, and we get to the end, and Mark ends it with this. Yeah, the women saw an empty tomb, and they were afraid. Why? That is like the worst cliffhanger in the history of the world. What's he doing? Well, this is what he's doing. He wants you to sit in the tension 
He's giving you an empty tomb, and it's like he's putting down his pen, and he's looking at you, and he's saying, what will you do with the empty tomb? What are the implications of that tomb for your life? This can't remain a story with a nice little bow tied on it in the past. He brings you into the story, and he says, what do you say about the empty tomb? And so that's where I want to go with the the rest of the time. I want to give you four implications of the empty tomb. Four implications of the empty tomb. First, that we have a new Lord. Second, that we have new power. Third, we have a new foundation. And fourth, we have a new hope. New Lord, new power, new foundation, new hope. All right, so first off, new Lord. I struggle with this one. Because if Jesus is Lord, why is the world the way that it is? So we all have these moments, right, where like everything feels perfect. I went golfing on Friday with Landon Quant, and it was unlimited golf, and I didn't know that, and it was like Christmas, and the world felt good again. But for every moment like that, we have these moments where you just look around and go, why is it like this? Here's the answer, and, and I think we miss this in the book of Genesis. So a lot of you know the story of the fall, and we know that we've, we've sinned, right? But we miss the power dynamics of what's happening. So this is what's going on in the fall, is God makes the universe, and it's beautiful, and it's his. And in some crazy act of love, or I, I don't know, I don't get it, he tosses us the keys to his kingdom that he just built, and he says, hey, rule it in my name. I want you to establish my image and my name in this place. And what do we do? We immediately turn around and we toss the keys of God's kingdom to his greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Okay, so, so I was trying to think about how, like, what that would be like now. Okay, so, so, so Trump is in Singapore today, right? So he's meeting with Kim Jong-un. They're going to talk about nukes and stuff like that. That's not the point. Um, so he's in Singapore. So imagine that that when Trump leaves, I don't know if this is how it actually works, but, but Pence like takes control of the White House, right? And he's like ruling in Trump's name. And, and don't do anything weird with this. I know this is recorded and going in the, the public domain. I'm not comparing Trump to Jesus. Okay, we're not doing that. But just, just roll with me here. So, so Pence is now ruling in Trump's name. So imagine if what Pence does with that is he calls up Kim Jong-un and he says, hey, Kimmy, because apparently they're buds in this illustration. Hey, Kimmy. I want you to ditch that meeting with Trump. I want you to come to the White House. And, and Kim Jong-un walks into the White House and, Trump's hands, er, and Pence hands him the keys to the White House and rolls out the Oval Office chair and says, sit down, the U.S. is yours. And we're now under the rule of a foreign hostile dictator. Okay, that's what it's like when we toss the keys to this good world, to Satan, and we've been living under that rule ever since. But this is what the resurrection is, is it's Jesus coming back to take his throne. And he walks up to this, this foreign ruler that has no business being there, and he says, hey, give me everything you've got. Give me the worst that you have. And Satan throws the worst that he has at him, death. And it's worked every time for every human throughout history. And he throws death at Jesus and Jesus laughs. 
It doesn't do a thing to him, and Jesus takes back his throne. And this is what Jesus is doing in the resurrection, is he's looking at the universe and he's saying, that's mine. Tim Keller says that the resurrection is Jesus stamping paid in full across the universe, and he's reclaiming it for himself. And you know what that means? Is he also says that over your life. He points at you and he says, that's mine. The resurrection means that Jesus owns your life, which, by the way, is a beautiful thing. He's a way better ruler than the one that you've been living under. But how do you feel about that when anyone says that they own you, when they rule you? Let me just ask you, like, I get it that that you like Jesus as someone that can forgive you of your sins, as kind of a buddy. Is Jesus your Lord? Have you put your yes on the table and allowed him to do whatever he wants with it? Because he's the Lord of the universe. That's true. And he's the Lord of you. It's just whether you're going to acknowledge that. Have you acknowledged him as Lord? And have you allowed him to speak into whatever he wants in your life? Okay, but the beauty of him being able to ask you things for now is that he doesn't just ask you for something, but he actually gives you the power to do it. So second point, new power, new power. So I've discovered in my life that there is a correlation between how old I get and how much I care about my lawn. I, I don't understand it. When I was a kid, I'd, I'd be out back and the golf thing's coming back. I like golf guys. I'd be, I'd be swinging and I'd like dig like a six inch trench in my backyard. My mom would get mad and I didn't get it because clearly golf is more important than grass. But the older that I get, I just care more and more. And I don't understand. The other day, we planted some new grass. The other day, the mailman walked on and I almost like yelled at him. And then I realized that I'm insane. But I just, I just like my grass. And so, like, college students, you, you think that, like, your biggest trial is coming up is finding a career and a spouse. It's not that. It's dealing with weeds in your grass. Okay, Cole, like, Creeping Charlie is coming. Okay? Guys, Creeping Charlie, I don't, okay, you guys know what this stuff is, right? This is, this is the weed of all weeds, and it's taking over my front yard, and I hate it. And and here's the thing with Creeping Charlie is when you were a kid, your mom told you, right, that if you, if you pull the, like, the roots out and not just pick the top, that the, the weed will die. Not Creeping Charlie. There's hidden roots somewhere. I don't know how it happens. I pull up the roots. It pops up 10 other places. And it's taken over. And I'm not okay with it. The more you pull, the more it grows. Okay, that's Sin. The more you try and weed sin out of your life, the more that you try and stop sinning, you pull three weeds out, five more are growing. You can't stop sinning. Why? Because you can't kill it. You can't kill the weed of sin in your life. You can pick the top of it, but the roots are still underneath. For me, that looks like anxiety. So, I'm like a worrier. I just freak out about everything. And I know that it's dumb. And look, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. Okay, that's a a different thing. Get diagnosed if that's helpful, all that stuff. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about just this like lack of trust 
in God, this, this trying to be in control of my own life, and I confess it, and I fight it, and it, it seems like it's not getting any better. And I know that it's stupid, but it like takes over my life. This week, I stress every time I get on the stage, I'm terrified of public speaking. I, it's, it's a weird job to have when you're terrified of public speaking. But I am, and I, I stress about it, I freak out, I panic every time, and it seems like no matter how much I fight it, it's just popping up somewhere else. If I get rid of anxiety in one part of my life, it's growing somewhere else. What's that for you? What's the weed of sin growing in your life that's just coming back over and over again? And, and, and some of you, you, you're discouraged. You're just frantically pulling weeds and you feel like you're not growing. You feel like nothing's happening. Or some of you have given up. You've just accepted like, this is who I am. I can't be any different. And you do one of two things. You just hide it. You pretend like it's not there. Or you justify it. You know, it's not really that bad. It's, it's not as bad as other people's sin. This is just how I am. This is just my personality. Here's what's so crazy about Jesus. Like, like you can't even manage your own sin. Jesus managed every sin. Like that's what he's doing on the cross. He, he put every sin ever committed on his shoulders and his knees didn't buckle under the weight. How do we know that? Because the result of sin is death every time. That's what's coming for sin, death every time. That's been the end of every human being, but Jesus laughed at death. He mocked it. It couldn't touch him. The fight between Jesus and death isn't a fair fight. Death has got like a butter knife and Jesus has a tank. Like it's not even close. Rising from the dead was easy for Jesus. Okay, he, he like... He could have done it in his sleep. It wasn't hard for him. It was simple. And listen, this is why this is important for your life. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. The same power that picked Jesus up out of the grave and declared him as Lord of the universe forever, untouchable, infinite, immortal, that power is in you. His name's the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. And if you know Christ, he lives inside of you and he's helping you to be like Jesus. Romans 6, 4 says this, we've been buried therefore with him by baptism and a death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are you catching what that means? That if you're a Christian, you've identified with his death, you are now dead to your old self, your old sin, the, the ways of sin that used to overtake you and you're alive. You were resurrected just like Jesus was resurrected. Jesus can kill the weeds. He can actually kill the sin. Stop trying to pick it on your own. Let him kill it in your life. And if you're discouraged and if you think you're not changing, look back at who you used to be. You might not be everything that you want to be, but you're also not who you used to be because Jesus is changing you whether you realize it or not. Trust him that he'll continue to change you, that he has the power. Jesus walked away from the tomb a free man. So can you. So can you. Yeah, that's new power, new foundation. A new foundation for our faith. So we make some big claims as Christians. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but like this whole thing that we're doing here is us being like, 
yep, this guy that lived 2,000 years ago, that's the centerpiece of my life. We, we think that we've found truth so that, that if you don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus, then you don't have truth and you're wrong. Like, we believe that there's this dude that can just tell a storm to stop and that it will and that he has power over death and that he somehow made the universe. Okay, this is weird stuff. Like, don't get mad at skeptics. Like, I, I get it. I struggle with some of that stuff. And, and so here's the thing. If we're gonna make claims like that, we better have a good foundation for our faith. And the foundation of our faith is not some random set of philosophical ideas it isn't blind faith. If it's just blind faith, I'm out. Yeah, it's faith, but it's based on something. It isn't blind faith. It's the foundation of our faith is a person who's alive. Like God became physical. He, he throws himself into history. And, and he says, guys, what are you going to do with me? Like, forget the, the side notes, forget the abstract stuff. What are you going to do with the person who claimed to be God and then backed up those claims? He puts himself in history and says, what will you do with the empty tomb? The empty tomb is the linchpin of Christianity. Everything hinges on it. If you can, again, if you can disprove it, Christianity's done. But if you can prove it, Christianity is true. So why can we trust the resurrection? For a lot of reasons, but I think, and, and I th there's even way more compelling reasons that we could talk about, but I wanted to throw a couple out to you, a couple reasons why we can trust the resurrection. The first one is that it happened in Jerusalem. It happened in Jerusalem. The movement of Christianity historically began in Jerusalem and it spread throughout the known world in a couple hundred years, right? So if the, the foundation of your movement was this claim that there was a dude that died and is now alive, what could you do to disprove that claim? Go to the tomb, show them the body, the movement's done. In fact, there were other messianic movements that happened. So there were other people that claimed to be God and the Romans killed them just like they killed Jesus and no other movement continued. Why? Because their God was dead, but our God's alive. And the reason why a movement like that could start in the very place where the tomb was, the very place where it would be easiest to disprove, is because there was an empty tomb which is compelling evidence in and of itself. But there's more than that. Not only was there an empty tomb, there was eyewitnesses to his new life. This is 1 Corinthians 15. It says there was 500 eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 7. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Okay, so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians early enough defending the resurrection and it was early enough that the vast majority of people who saw Jesus after he had come back to life were still alive. And so when Paul defends the resurrection, he says, don't trust me on this. Go check my sources. And he says, most of them are still alive. You can talk to them. 
If there's one or two people that are his sources, maybe, maybe you could think that didn't actually happen. But 500, 500 people from different backgrounds in different places saying the same thing that they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, that he was alive after he had died. Even on top of that, if you look at who those people were, right, it says that James was one of the people who saw Jesus alive. Who was James? The brother of Jesus, who thought Jesus was crazy, by the way. Okay, the brother of Jesus. So I have two sisters, Lindsay and Jessica. They're all right. (laughs) I like them. But here's the thing. There is nothing in the world that you could give me to worship Lindsay as God. Like, it's just not going to happen. Think about your siblings. What would it take to get you to worship them as God? Is that going to be easy for you? James is the brother of Jesus who grew up with him and picked at him and probably hated him at times and thought he was crazy. And now he's saying that his brother is alive and he's going to the temple to sing worship songs to his brother. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Are there alternative explanations to the empty tomb? Yes. Are, there, are they anywhere as close to as good as this one? No. Your choices are either to believe something illogical because of your biases that we all have, by the way. I know that we also have them. We can't get rid of them entirely. But to believe something illogical or to fall at Jesus' feet and to worship him as the resurrected Lord. But here's the thing. I have doubts intellectually. Don't, don't hear me come on too strong in this. There's things that don't make sense to me. I don't fully understand suffering. I don't understand some of the things I read in the New Testament. I don't understand why God would allow evil in the world. I don't get that. I struggle with that stuff. I'm with you in that if you're skeptical. But here's what's also true. My greatest doubts about Christianity aren't intellectual. My biggest objection to Christianity is me. Like why, if this is true, why am I not better than I am? Why am I still struggling with the same old stuff that I've always struggled with? Why do I not have more power to fight sin? Why am I a hypocrite at times? Why am I like this? I want you to notice something in the text that's been a huge comfort to me this week. Verse seven, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Why does he signal out Peter? What has Peter just done? Publicly denied Jesus after promising that he never would. He betrayed his best friend, and he's sitting in the shame of that moment. Have you had that moment where you're going down the path of sin, and you don't really realize what you're doing, and then the rooster crows? Like something snaps you out of it, and you realize you just betrayed the one that you love. What do you do? What happens then? Like if I'm Peter and Jesus says, hey, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee, I'll be like, hey, I'm catching you guys later. I'm going the opposite direction. This could have been the most epic I told you so moment in history, by the way. You know, just that juicy I told you so moment that, that we all love secretly. Like Jesus could have had a massive one with Peter. But what does he do? He specifically says, go tell Peter, I want to see him. Why? Because of the resurrection, our standing with God is not grounded in our ability to feel forgiven. It's not grounded in your ability to not betray him. 
It's grounded in the resurrected Christ whose mercy overwhelms your betrayal. Your forgiveness is a historical fact. It's unshakable because Jesus is unshakable. It's not about you, it's about him. And he offers mercy to betrayal. And that gives us hope. Last one, hope. I want to read this section from 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So Paul is taunting death, which is a pretty bold move. This is a weird verse. Can you imagine reading this verse at a funeral? You walk up to do the eulogy. You're standing in front of an open casket, and you read the verse, Oh, death, where is your sting? Where's your sting? It's in the family. It's in the cancer. It's in the pain. It's in the suffering. But when does death lose its sting? When it stops being the end and it becomes the beginning. Do you understand that with Jesus, death is like waking up from a bad dream? That on the day when your eyes close, the world will immediately open up into a new world that you've always dreamed of. Does that mean that life is great now? No. That was poor timing. Because the resurrection isn't ibuprofen. It's not a painkiller. It doesn't stop the pain now. But it does give you hope that the pain will end. Here's why. Because Jesus, even though he was the first one to rise from the dead forever, he won't be the last. You're next. That's the hope of Christianity. Not some weird abstract story, not some floating on a cloud with a harp, not babies with wings, like you getting up out of the grave with a new physical body. And this is what you're going to do with that new physical body that's just like Jesus' new physical body. You're going to explore the world and I think maybe even the universe with Jesus. And not only are you going to raise, but this entire world is going to raise. He's not going to just kind of burn this thing and let it go. Is there going to be some of that? Yeah. But he's not going to abandon his original creation. He's going to resurrect it just like he resurrects you. Your hope is unending, expanding joy with the king of the universe at your side in a body that never wants to sin, that never breaks that never has cancer, that never suffers with relational unity. 
where we'll act like his church, like his body. That's our hope. Have you heard the phrase, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? Right, this idea that you can think too much about heaven and then not live well here, not true. I, I hate that phrase, actually. Because when you set your mind on heaven, you're not setting your mind on a daydream, on something fake. You're setting your mind on what's real. You're living in the daydream. That's what's real. And we bring hope here. We bring heaven here when we become heavenly minded. You go from anxiety to peace because your future is secure. You go from depression to joy because circumstances don't get to define you anymore. You go from being self-centered to self-sacrificial because you can give up your rights because someday you're going to have eternity. (laughs) What can't you give up now if you're going to have that? You can go from hoarding to giving Because you have eternal riches. You have everything that you need. So wake up every day and put on hope. Have the discipline of learning to believe what's already true of you. Make what's true real in your life. So I want to end it the way that that I think Mark ends it. Mark finishes writing the greatest story ever told the true story, and he puts down the pen and he looks at you and he says, what now? So my question for you is, what will you do with the empty tomb? Will you experience the new life that Jesus has for you because he rose from the dead? And will you rise with him too? Let me pray. Jesus, I love that so much. It's such a, oh, it's a cool truth that we're gonna get to not only see you someday, but have new bodies and live in a new world that's not broken, that's not screwed up. Thanks for rising from the dead. Thanks for being everything that we're not. Thanks for loving us more than we loved you. Thanks for giving us mercy even when we betrayed you. And you deserve our worship. You're worthy of it. You deserve it, Jesus. So we want to worship you now together. And and as we do, would you give us a sense of that hope? Would that become real to us? And can we worship out of joy in what's coming? In this hope that we're going to get to see you someday, that there's not going to be distance or sin, brokenness between us, but we're just going to wake up to you And we get a little taste of what heaven's gonna be like now through experiencing your presence. And so help us to to honor you through worshiping like that. We love you, amen.